Welcome to RZ Weekly. My name is Ruben Spolter. I'm here with Rab Johnny Solomon and Molly Brovsky. And today we're going to discuss two topics. The first topic we're going to discuss is the fascinating phenomenon called Alonai Shabbat, which are Shabbat sheets. Anyone in Israel who's ever been to shul on a Friday night, if you're a man, apparently, you know exactly what these are. If you're a woman, you never see them in the Ezrat Nashim because they never make them that far. That's, uh, that's our, 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 stro- our small poll. And what we'd like to discuss tonight is uh, what are the uh, ramifications or the implications of these Shabbat sheets? And, uh, and then maybe we could discuss perhaps what are the sociological ramifications of them and even the religious ones. And secondly, after that, that will uh, that that we feel will lead into I feel will lead into an interesting discussion about the some of the challenges of tefillah, especially uh, in light of two articles written by Rav Eliezer Melamed in Besheva these past two weeks, and uh, some things that I personally have been feeling about the challenge of tefillah, especially as it relates to our generation. So uh, I'm going to start just sort of like I think if you're not, if you're listening, you don't know what these Alone Shabbat are. You kind of have to think of them as full-color magazines geared towards, I would say, different uh, sub-audiences in the religious Zionist community that have some limited amount of Torah content but are just basically avenues for advertisements. Would you, would you agree with me about that, uh, Johnny? I mean, well, I think it, there, there's like different categories of, of them. Yeah, I, I happen to actually know quite a bit about this. In, in my previous work, I dealt in, with, in student recruiting for a, for a religious college. And so we advertised in these things all the time. I could tell you all about them. I used to have to re- read them. I still read them. Um, but they're they're geared towards they're they're geared toward published by different institutions, very often by different publishers. You know, one of them is geared specifically has ads about like all the vacations you can take. One of them is about you know is about real is a real estate ad, and then they have one of them is produced by Machon Somet. One of them is produced in in Gush Etzion, which is Halacha and Technology Institute. There's like maybe fifteen or sixteen standard Alone Shabbat, and Basically, uh, the way I could describe it is when you walk into shul on Friday night, and you'll tell me, Johnny, if this is your, uh, your experience also, um, many people have this pile of magazines. It's almost like Newsweek and, you know, The New Yorker sitting next to you, except extensively they're about Torah. And then less so, I would say, during the davening itself, during Kabbalah, Shabbat, but even during the davening. And certainly as soon as anybody opens their mouth to speak, everybody pulls out this pile of magazines and they're all like leafing through them, sort of reading through them uh, while, while the davening is supposed to go along. So I, I've sort of described what they are. Rav Johnny, I would love you to, to give your um, halachic position, religious position on these Alonai Shabbat, and then, uh, and, and then maybe we'll discuss a little further. So you're right, there are about 15 standard Alonai Shabbat. And in general, for people who are unfamiliar uh, with many synagogues, there'll be a table outside of shul where they are neatly laid out and where uh, congregants, worshippers, will come and collect their favorite two, three or four. Most people doing so on their way into shul rather than on their way out of shul. And... um, some actually are quite large, like Olam Katan really is a newspaper-sized magazine when you open it up. Uh, some do contain significant amount of Divrei Torah with a marginal amount of advertising. Some have about a 50-50 balance. And some, and it's very important to note, have no Divrei Torah. And they are merely advertising and, and news posts. And so people will bring them into shul. Uh, I know in Yabinimin, most people won't be reading them in Davening and perhaps when somebody's speaking. In Evanshwell, there are people who will be reading these uh, publications during parts of Tefillah. And when you have to imagine one which contains Divrei Torah, then perhaps there may be some sense in them doing so. One which is merely, as you say, a realtor's magazine or one just about vacations or all which also contain adverts about uh, different things that may well interest religious people, religious Zionist people, uh, that too may catch the worshipper's eye, or shall we say the reader's eye, who keeps on being interrupted by tefillah. In terms of a, a Jewish perspective, or a halachic perspective, this is something which I actually have a very strong position about. I'm fairly easygoing, but people in my community know that I'm very hardline on this. <laughs> and in the third volume of the responsor of Asher Weiss, uh, called Minchat uh, Asher, this is in fact, if you have it, Chelek Shlishi Siman Chaf Aleph, 
he has a, a, a relatively brief but certainly very pointed um, uh, piece all about this. Um, he presumes, of course, that nobody's going to bring this into synagogue during tefillah. Uh, regrettably, that's not the case. But nonetheless, he raises the important halachic question. Can somebody be reading magazines and advertising on Shabbat? Of course, if you're reading just merely the Divrei Torah, then uh, presuming it's not interrupting tefillah, uh, then that may be well justified. Nevertheless, if you're reading adverts about things which have no relationship with uh, Shabbat, is that permitted? And he concludes quite firmly, uh, and this shouldn't shock people, that one shouldn't be reading uh, adverts, at least, on Shabbat. And so he advises that these Alonei Shabbat should have in very bold letters, you may read the Divrei Torah, but you may not be looking at these adverts on Shabbat. That means, by the way, that those which do not contain Divrei Torah uh, certainly shouldn't be read on Shabbat. And my feeling is the great majority shouldn't even be brought into a Bet Knesset because in general, what they simply do is undermine the spirit and the atmosphere of prayer because the majority of people would rather read up what's been going on in the political world than necessarily be, uh, be involved in the Tefillah itself. So how is it? I mean, this is something that any thinking person, I have to agree with you, uh, in Yabin, I mean, at least, uh, at least in the area around me during davening, people aren't reading them. And if people are reading during davening, I find it incredibly distracting. Because it, even, like, even in like, if you're reading a magazine next to me and I'm trying to focus on my sidor, it's just really distracting. And I will move my seat if somebody's daven, in the middle of davening, I'll move my seat. If it's uh, during Kriyata Torah or whatever, I, I've sort of learn to ignore it. And even once when I, like every now and then in Yabin Yamin, they used to, they have, uh, they have the members of the shul get up and daven, and I went and said something about it. People got really mad at me, which is not surprising at all. Why would you, what right do you have to tell us what to do, etc., etc. Okay, I'm going to turn to Molly, because even though Molly hasn't seen this, I'm going to ask you a question. How, this is not something that's really hard to debate. Meaning, it's, it's one thing if they were like, you know, the Chabad Divrei Torah, or like real Divrei Torah, and people are reading, you know, Parsha sheets or what have you. You know, the Barilan, I don't know if you've ever seen the Barilan Divrei Torah, it's really nicely thought about. How is it possible that, that these things have infiltrated into our shuls? It's one thing to say, okay, you want to take them home. But these things are regularly read in shuls, they're distributed in shuls, and, and the rabbis don't seem to either want to or have the energy to stand up to it. And this is something that's clearly against everything that we hold dear about davening, and yet nobody wants to do anything about it. It just seems to be one of those things that, yeah, what can you do? Why is that, and what does it say about us? Okay, well, I have to start by saying that I know nothing about Alonai Shabbat, which I actually think is quite fascinating, because some, so I've never seen one Alon Shabbat, Shabbat in the Ezrat Nashim. Um, ever. I've, I've literally, like, I literally, like, I know that they exist. I remember once somebody asked me to write a Devar Torah for one. I didn't know what they were talking about. I asked my husband. He's like, of course, of course, they're the entrance to the shul, but they're, but because they're not supposed to be read during tefillah, so, like, it's, I forgot what he said. They're, they're in these special dispensers, or they're in a certain place, and you're not supposed to bring them in, but everybody grabs them and brings them home. So, apparently, they're a thing. Um, <laughs> Nobody brings them home in your house? Nobody brings them home? Mm, I don't think so. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it's kind of hard for me, you know, to... Okay. Well, just so you understand, so, okay, so you have no knowledge, just, just so you understand, in some of them, in fact, most of them, the most popular thing is what's called the brunja, which is like, who had a bar mitzvah? It's literally gossip columns of the religious community. Like, you know, who had a bar mitzvah and who got a new appointment and there are restaurant reviews. I'm like, so I'm not exaggerating in any shul, way at all. But we know that doesn't come out on Shabbos. You know, that comes out, that's the chidush ba'alush, and it comes out once every three weeks and somebody reads it, but I don't know. I mean, again, there could be this whole Alanei Shabbat phenomenon going on that I'm just not aware of in the men's section. Oh, uh, it's going on. Trust me, it's going yeah. on. So I'm saying, is it because the women's section is upstairs and this is another one of those cases where that's not really part of the shul, so things don't Absolutely. Happen. Without without a um, doubt. Which <laughs> well, That's another discussion. That, that, that's that. another discussion that bothers me no end, and I'll just say my pet peeve is if you're going to decorate for Shavuos and you're going to put flowers and greenery in the shul, some of them should be in the women's section because if not, what are you saying about the women's section and what is the shul? So I don't necessarily. I think the answer to that is self-explanatory, but that's right. another discussion. Right, and that entirely. very much bothers me. But I'm saying, I don't think we, you know, I don't think it's like the, the fact that the plague of Alonai Shabbat has not reached a, the the Israel Nashim is necessarily something that's a problem. But to answer your question, Ruby, I think what you're what you what you're kind of 
trying to imply, and you may be very correct, is that there might be two reasons for this. One is sociological. This is part, it's just become part of the Datilomi world. And I do have to say that it's not illegitimate, and this I will say for sure happened to the women's section, that shul, certainly on Shabbat, is not just a place for tefillah, it is a place for communal gathering. There is no question that, and I know this because women have told this to me, people go to shul to see to see people and to socialize. Uh, especially, again, for women, if they're not going to Minyan three times a day, they are going to Shul on Shabbat because it's an opportunity to be together with community. So the fact that a community experience, you know, something that's like a little bit uh, picante and interesting and, ses- and, you know, information spreading would happen in the Shul is not shocking. And the second, I think, is also part of, I think what you want, you know, you want to lead the conversation to this is, well, what's what you know? Why are people not interested in what's happening in the actual tefillah experience, and they need to be mesiach their dad and put their mind somewhere else to be reading these Adonai Shabbat? So I don't know how much you know what percentage is either one of those reasons, but definitely I think those two things play a role. I, I, I actually, I, I, we will get there. I definitely want to leave in that direction, but I'm curious why people who care about tefillah feel powerless against this phenomenon. I mean, like, shuls construct, you know, these receptacles, as John described them, in order to give them out in shul. And you would think that if a a shul, a vad, that's a board in English, okay, a board, a rabbi felt strongly about how, how, you know, anti-tefillah these things are, which they are. I don't think it's really a matter for debate. You want to take them home, take them home. Fine, then put them out. I know some shuls actually put them out in some, I would say, more much more chardali shuls if they have them. They put them out after the davening, like the I rabbi think says. that might be what they said. I, I get I'd have to ask the person here who knows about what happens with these other stuff. But I was given the impression that there is some mechanism that is clearly meant to imply that you're only, that you're either supposed to take them home, they're not out. And I don't exactly know. But like, I agree with you. that, And I think that there are some shuls that do that. Um, you guys have to tell me. I mean, what role do these things? Apparently, I'm missing some kind of major phenomenon in the Datsilumi world because I completely am not plugged oh, into. But so I will say. So first of all, what phenomenon do they? What role do they play? What 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 place are they filling? And then you'll get the answer to your question of why, you know, they they continue to exist. So I'll tell you why. The reason they exist is very simple because they are, and I can tell you from the other side, from the, from the side of the publisher, they're an incredibly efficient way to advertise to a, to a, cap, a captivated community. So if you're trying to advertise, uh, as, as, I, as we did in O'Road, and you have a certain budget, and you want to reach a, reach a religious Zionist community, so there's only one community anymore that reads, that reads actual printed page. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, as much as, so internet ads don't work and media is really expensive, but if you want to reach a, a community, the cheapest way to do it is these Elone Shabbat because they're full-color magazines and the, and the distribution is so limited that only a certain group of people are going to see them. So if you have advertising to the religious community or, you know, you're advertising like vacations geared to the religious community or colleges or, you know what I'm saying, or, or politics, just so you know, the, all the religious, all the ads are like, you know how they say, this is not a, a political statement. You know how they say, like, you know, Bennett and Shaked are not targeting the religious Zionist community? It's really funny you say that because every single one of the Alanei Shabbat is now mm-hmm. full ads of Bennett and Shaked. So they're going hardcore, which is their right, but you know what I'm saying? That's how you target mm-hmm. a community. And the reason they exist is because the ads work. They're really, really efficient and they're very powerful. You know, how, where, it, so that's what, something interesting about, about, about having a message reach the religious Zionist community. You know what I'm saying? And these, these, these magazines, when they're well run, Matzav Ruach is 80 pages long every week. I mean, it's an unbelievable thing to be able to support that week after week after week. Olam Katan, during the holidays, has two sections. And Olam Katan does have token. It's supposed to be for youth. It's written in just this tiny, tiny, tiny print. I'm surprised you never read these things. Sometimes, like, very important uh, discussions in the Migzar, in the in the segments of the Datitzioni community, take place in these Alonei Shabbat. By the way, really I just want to say, I, just because I don't take them, and just because that they're not distributed in the women's section, I don't want to mislead people. It's very possible that women are reading them, that they're reading yeah, them. Yeah, I hope so. Bringing them home, you know, I don't want to make this, and I don't want to make a false. Um, so, nail. so they are these Alonei Shabbat are, I would say, are the 
media for the religious Zionist community in which people, you know, Rav Rosen, was the head of the Tomit Institute. And the most important part of the, of the, of the Alon Shabbat was the article that he wrote on the back of the Alon Shabbat every week. Because he would opine and he gained a real position of influence in the community partially because he would say things in this Alon Shabbat. That was his like drasha. He would always write it Motzei Shabbat and publish it during the rest of the week. And, and he had something to say and people really wanted to know what he had to say. So, However, it, uh, yeah. can, in contrast to that, um, one of my frustrations, aside from the halachic opposition towards the adverts and the opposition in terms of the respect for tefillah, uh, and the respect for communities who should be praying and not enabling this absurd phenomenon <laughs> is that many divrei Torah are, are ridiculously shallow precisely because there are very, very limited costs and people are writing on a weekly basis relatively small columns. And beyond the actual divrei Torah, there is a phenomenon which many people do discuss. And I think there's even a Facebook group dedicated to it, which is the Shut Solulari of Rav Avi now. Oh, excellent. Is, yeah, I should have mentioned that. I'm sorry. Totally, brief, correct. Uh, totally correct. Uh, rulings and remarks. Now, Rav Avi now, we could have a whole session about him. Perhaps we should. But in this case, what he does is he writes uh, answers to questions he received via SMS. And they're often the talk of the town, either because they're extreme and not extreme. So you have a certain shallowness of a form of literature, both the Divrei Torah and here too, because I'm a purist in terms of a sponsor. And even Rav Avinar would say, this shouldn't be taken too seriously, but because it's light and most people who are reading it just want a little bit of something to say around the Shabbat table. So yeah, the token in Alonei Shabbat often becomes the sole Jewish uh, content shared at the Shabbat table in many religious Zionist families. And that's that's a reality. This is a serious vehicle, you're right, for both advertising and for political conversations and for both important things like Rav Rosen and often less important things uh, which appear... I think elsewhere. the restaurant reviews are very important. I mean, you got to know, you know where you can eat Mahadra and Yerushalayim. I mean, seriously. I wish I was kidding. There's a, one of the other days. I like that, has. of course, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I should have mentioned that. The, I, I, there used to be a, like a rumor that Yeshiva Bachrim would send in shoot SMS to Rav Avinir, like the more ridiculous that, that they, as more ridiculous, you know, the, as, as ridiculous as possible to see if they would print it in the Olam Katan. Ah, do you see what I, you know? Even I have heard of those. Even I know about them. <laughs> All right. I, I mean, I think, uh, I, I think it's fair to say they're halakhali problematic. I think it's fair to say that people want to read them. But I think it also says, and we'll go, I think we'll use this as a pivot to the next part of the conversation, that it's, it speaks to a sense of a lack of fulfillment that people feel when they come to shul. So if you come to shul, it's interesting. If you come to shul for the social reasons, What's really interesting, I've discovered in Chutzlaretz, there's an entire phenomenon of people on Shabbat mornings, and Shabbat morning is like a much bigger thing, of people coming to shul on Shabbat morning with their little children, sitting in the children's room the entire davening, and then coming to Kiddush. And I, I remember, now that I realize it's something that I, that I remember from my shul in Detroit, but it's a, it's a phenomenon, that shuls find it appropriate to like provide coffee for these, for these parents, mm-hmm. and at least they should be coming you know, if they're going to go anywhere, we'd much rather they come to shul, and hopefully they'll absorb some of the environment, feel comfortable in the religious environment. So that being said, so in our religious community, that's not acceptable. You can't just come and, you know, go to the kiddush club, because hopefully there isn't one, and you can't just drink coffee because there is no kids' room. So but what does it say about our our approach to davening and tefillah in general, that even in Israel, where davening is much, much shorter than it is in Chutzlaretz, People would much rather read magazines than, than either daven on Friday night or listen to Kriyata Torah or certainly listen to someone's Zvar Torah or even a great drasha of the Rav of the Shul. That, that, and that's something that I've been, I don't want to dominate the conversation. I, I, you know, I, shared, a, you got, you, I shared a couple of articles with you about mm-hmm. tefillah. So um, uh, we'll, we'll start again with Rav Johnny and ask if, if, you, if you don't mind introducing this idea and then, and then I'm going to ask some pointed questions, halachic questions that... that I don't have answers to, but I think I think to me I've been I've been thinking about quite a bit. I mean, a, a lot of people, when reflecting on uh, religious Zionist Jews in general, here and and we have we have to stress here, we're talking very generally. Of course, there are many people who are particularly committed to tefillah in every definition of the term, but nonetheless, uh, these are things which uh, I have seen and I see enough 
for it to be worthy of our conversation here. I, I just want to say this conversation per se, I don't think is limited to any particular religious group. I think I think everyone struggles with tefillah. I think it's a universal problem. Whether you read the Alone Shabbat or not, you might be reading something else or you might not because it's socially unacceptable. But I, I don't think this, this this part of the discussion is limited to our 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 demographic group, I would say. Right, so... so pr- Praying, you know, Rav Soloveitchik, I think, once said that a Jew would rather say that they've prayed than to say that they are praying. It's a certain tick list that we've done it and we move on. And uh, within the religious Zionist world, as you say, even more widely than that, uh, people want to have gone to shul, have said the things that they need to go to shul, but it not uh, to overly interrupt their life and for it to be some kind of distraction for the other press and strains that they may well experience. So people go to shul, especially in Israel. Uh, we don't have a struggle with the Hebrew. In fact, anybody who generally who's in the field of religious Zionism generally doesn't even need a siddur. They're, they're very, very au fait with the words. Uh, they're generally familiar with the, at least a general flow, an ebb of a parasha. So th- there's a question. Do you want to be engaged? And that will require you to lean forward, invest more time in understanding tefillah, understanding the depth of the parasha, or you just want to go with the flow, and that's enough. And for many people, simply saying the words, listening to the words, and being uh, observant enough um, can get you through, and the, the spice, the little crane that you add to the whole event is, is what you read and, and what stimulates you and what conversations you have with the guy sitting next to you. Um, you know, I, I sent you guys a, a video of Andodos, you know, which often makes fun of uh, specifically this part of the Jewish world. And people are just understimulated in shul and understimulated in wishing to enrich their shul experience. They just do it. And often it's the lowest common denominator. I have to stress, by the way, I am Sfridi by birth. I david in the Ashkenazi shul. Um, Sfridim do not have this. The notion of Alanei Shabbat does not exist in Sephardic shuls because the whole approach to tefillah is radically different. Um, the respect for tefillah, not feeling rushed for tefillah. Uh, one doesn't have that in, in Sephardic communities which I've attended and where I daven. This is most undoubtedly in terms of the first remarks regarding Alonei Shabbat, and I think even the remarks we're talking about now, an Ashkenazic phenomenon, uh, and specifically I'd say most potent in the religious Zionist world. It's interesting that you say that because I've heard in our community this Friday shul is concerned that less and less young people are coming to the main shul. They're going somewhere else to dive in faster and and uh, you know more briefly. That they're they're not pa- they don't have the patience. I remember clearly when I used to do uh, youth work in in midrach I think midrach oz I think it was it was a Taimani shul. And the davening mm-hmm. was from eight o'clock in the morning to one o'clock in the afternoon. And right. then I like I remember one week I literally fell asleep because they were reciting something or else whatever, <laughs> and and none of the young people were there. It was all the old people, but none yeah. of the young people were outside talking. They weren't they weren't there during davening, you know you know I I don't think this is I, I think that that is a different challenge. But the notion the the point is when you're there, there is a respect for being there. I agree though that the whole question of youth in shuls, which certainly crosses the Atlantic, uh, an impact on communities across the world. In fact. That again, perhaps, is deserving of a separate session. So I, I, let me, I'll, I'll just be more specific. What really got me—I um, I wouldn't say what really got me—I I, I think about this a lot because davening is important to me. I am a person who goes to davening, who attends minyan on a regular basis, and invests a lot, a tremendous amount of my life in tefillah. But I always come back to—it's—it's it's very hard, you know. Chazal said it themselves. There's a Mishnah in Brachot that says Rabbi Lezer Omer. In which, basically, you know, to understand it means if you do something on a set basis, then his, his prayer is not supplication. And there's a, there's a constant tension between the, the repetitiveness of tefillah on the one hand and, and the cost that that has in meaning and in focus and in prayer. And I just find... You know, we don't. We no longer live in an era of chazanim. Like we don't. I never grew up with chazanut. So now, right, <laughs> Molly, nobody can see your face, but uh, we don't like chazanim. And very rare, few and far between, are the. I would say are the are the are the you know the the the, the davening leaders or the lay people who have the ability to actually 
to actually move me, you know, who have good enough voice that I come away feeling, wow, that was actually moving. And even Karlebach, Karlebach to me has also become repetitive because it also is a dance where it has the exact same songs over and over again. You know what I'm saying? There's no spontaneity to it. And I find myself coming to shul, even when I know the words, trying to focus and being very unmoved by the experience. You know, I'll go to shul on a Shabbat morning and do all the things and ask myself afterwards, do I feel I really connected to God? And, and what's, what's, what concerns me most is a lot of these things are built into the tefillah because they are. And I'm specifically talking about, for example, Chazarat HaShatz, the repetition of the Shemona Esrei, which nobody but nobody listens to, unless, like, you're, there's really, I've met, like, very few hardcore people who stand at attention, and they're unbelievably admirable. I don't find I have the ability to do this. You know, the repetition of the Shemona Esrei, I don't understand. Like, we got rid of most of the Mishaberos, thank God, in Israel. I don't know how they know that they still do that in America. Like, uh, there's a number of prayers that nobody listens to or focuses on, because if they did, we would never say Av HaRachamim anymore, because it's an incredibly bloodthirsty tefillah. And, and I just feel like, over the course of history, all we know how to do is add and add and add and add, and we don't know how to cut. And then when you add and add and add and add, it becomes so overwhelming that it's almost impossible to have meaning. One of the things, I know I'm, I know I'm dominating the conversation, and I apologize for that, is there's so much to say that your average person, there's no difference in the way that a person recites Birchot HaShachar, or Psuke de Zimra, or Birchot Kriyat Shema, or Kriyat Shema itself, even though one is a shadow of a minhag, one is a minhag with a bracha, one is a bracha de Rabbanan, and one is a kiyum of a diorita. And, and why? Because there's so much to say. You just have to say it all as quickly as you possibly can, without, without at least giving some thought to saying, okay, one second, do you really have to say all these things? And at what cost are we saying them? And is there any way to fix this? Well, Molly? I, Molly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so first of all, I think you said a lot of very true things. The first is that I don't think, that, on the one hand, I don't think that this is a, the struggle with tefillah, I don't think is, a, is necessarily a new phenomenon. I think the struggle with having kavanah and tefillah, you know, in my husband's book, he opens the book with quotes from Rabbanim who say like, during tefillah, I counted the birds that were like flying across the room. And during tefillah, I was counting the bricks in the wall. Like, it, it, there is an intrinsic difficulty with having kavana. Um, so that's, and, and Rav Lama says that in his article, and I think that's very true. Um, and I think we can broaden that to say that, and I think Ruby, you said this, that there's a tension in tefillah as there is in all or many halachic experiences between, um, Rav Soloveitchik has a beautiful line. He says, Judaism is first a discipline and second a romance. And what he means by that is that first you have the ritual, but the ritual is meant to be the framework meaning is uh, through which the meaning is expressed. And I am a very firm believer that without the framework and without the ritual and without the rote, um, there's very little, you know, as, mu as much as people want spontaneity and they want experience, if you just wait for spontaneity to occur, um, at the end of the day, when you look back over the amount, you know, the t the, your time span, you will have much less religiosity in your life than if you do things over and over and over and over by rote. Um, I think, let me say that again more clearly. Let's say you have two people. One person says, I don't believe in ritual. Actually, this one, there was this conversation between Franz Rosenzweig and Martin Buber, right? Uh, Buber was very into the, um, the experience, the I, thou, it has to be spontaneous, it has to be authentic. Um, and he said, it's not, you know, what, what kind of religious experience is, is ritualistic and dry? That's the opposite of an encounter with God. Um, uh, the argument that was, you know, Franz Rosenzweig said, uh, if you never, if you never actually act, commit to something and do something, you're never going to actually have the experience. And I, I think that that's correct because if you wait around for spiritual moments, they don't show up. A person who, you know, like who, I always, this is the example I always give my students. Who, who would you consider um, a runner? Somebody who like says. You know, when the spirit moves me, I'm going to get up and I'm going to, you know, run up a hill and I'm going to get to the top of the mountain and I'm going to see the sunrise and I'm going to be like, oh, this was the most awesome run. The person who drags himself out of bed 630 in the morning and runs every single morning for half an hour. 
So first of all, I think the runner is the person who acts out his running, even if he doesn't experience it every time. And I would add the second point is that the wait, 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 wait a second. I, I accept runner, what you're saying about the runner. Wait, wait, let me just finish the, runner, the point. But the but the runner is de facto running. He doesn't. He's not having. It's not a. It's not a running wait, experience. Wait. So let me make he's my second runner. point. But the okay. runner, tachlis. If you if you have the runner who's running every day, he's committed to running. First of all, I think that's in itself an advantage. And second of all, I think if you're going to then at the end of the year compare compare Mister or Ms., you know, I'm going to wait until the spirit moves me to have a running experience. And the other one who says, I run every day, I think de facto, the guy who actually runs every day will have had more um, meaningful running experiences. So I think that, the, that the, um, the push and pull between ritual and meaning is a very, very complex one. Um, and that we have to be very careful about tweaking either ends of it. All of that being said, of course, I believe that we have to be aware of the problems and when they are solvable in the ritual world, you know, I, I agree with you. Listen, you know, you pointed to all the weak points. Um, you know, who has the patience for Chazarat Hashat? Who has the patience for um, all the other times when you're not actively involved? And even when you are actively involved, anything that you do by rote, listen, I happen to Carla Bachman Yanim, for me, are still enough that I feel... Spiritually, spiritually elevated by them, but I recognize that, you know, for another, as, as you said, you have you know six in a row, and now it's like, oh no, another Carla Bachshab. I just want to go home and eat, you know eat dinner. So, <laughs> I, I, I guess what I'm saying. Wait, is, I, say I guess what I'm saying is, you're right do about. we educate? The wait, do problem, we? So, you're Boober Rosenzweig, like Rosenzweig, yeah. like that dichotomy is obviously correct. It's not one or the other. Correct. My, my point is. When, when we, we, there's no room in the davening for individuality and spontaneity. Uh, we are oh, never that, taught. So, okay. We are so, never I wanna, taught. I don't want to give like, a solution. I just want to continue um, pointing out that you are correct. Um, in the sense what? that th this is true. <laughs> Sorry. This is true. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it happens to be true. Like Judaism, Halakha Judaism, this is a rule I once learned. Like if you want to see which is the more, more ancient text, it's always the shorter one. Because we never cut anything out. We only add things in. And once something's in the canon, we're never going to... No one's going to cut it out. No one's going to cut it out. Which is why, you know, our tefillah balloons. And we end up with, you know, saying much more. And as, you, as you're very correctly saying, we're not being discerning about what's absolutely necessary and what is minhag and what is, you know, and, and I think that, that, that there is an important conversation to be had around that, even though I would still be careful because I happen to be very conservative about tinkering with Nusach and with uh, changing things because I think um, I, I think that has to be done carefully. Maybe that's a different conversation. I just want to make one more point, which I find very interesting, that somebody just said to me at a wedding. They said, we're talking about the Datilumi world and, you know, religiosity among the youth. And they said, you know what? There's one place, you know, at, at the Chuppah, everybody's talking, no one's paying attention. There's one place. Part of the chuppah that's Yaharag Val Yavor. Everybody stands at attention and has the most kavana. What's that? Because that speaks to our community. Because our community is emotionally invested in um, in the concept of galut and geula, and they are always moved by the idea of um, standing under the chuppah. You, and usually in Eretz Israel, you are somewhere in Eretz Israel, very often in and, or near Yerushalayim, and and that pulls everybody's attention. In the same way, I would say... Really? In your show, when the Chazan says a prayer for the state of Israel, like in America, it's like everybody stands, they pledge allegiance to the flag. Right. How is it so, in your show in Israel? So I'd say, How is it? I think still, I still think people are quieter during Tefillah L'Shalom Medina and during, uh, you know, the Tefillah L'Chayah than they are during other things. But I will also say, tell you which Tefillah of the whole year are the most rocking and emotional in our shul, or in all units our shul. I'll, you know, Yamim Noraim is pretty high up there. But like, you know, besides the Yamim Noraim, clearly, Yom Ha'atzmaot and Yom Yerushalayim. Those right. are times when the energy is, is, is electrifying because people are, are emotionally invested. So again, none of that is a solution. And I don't even know that I, it's a critique because... The other thing that I want to say is like maybe, and again, I, it's funny that I would say this because I do believe that it's important to find ways to make things spiritually meaningful. But I also think that we, that as observant Orthodox Jews, we also have to have a little bit of um, like, like um, respect 
and Johnny brought, brought up respect in the Spidey show, maybe this is part of it. I once heard a, I won't say who it is because I don't think it's nice to quote people by name without their permission, but somebody who was related to um, a great Talmud Chacham who said... That could be anybody. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it could be a lot of people. Uh, you can try to guess, you know, based on my location. Um, they said, this person said, you know, we went to shul. We didn't expect, we didn't expect to have a chavaya, a spiritual experience. We went to shul. And if one time over the course of the year we had a spiritual experience, we thanked the Kaddish Baruch Thanks, Kaddish Baruch that he gave us that spiritual experience. But you guys, you're all looking for the chavaya. Now, they were saying it. Wait, you read, the, you, 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 you remember the beginning. I don't know if I did. I think Rav, uh, Rav, uh, Rav uh, Malamid put this in his piece. If he didn't, I read it somewhere, I don't remember, who said, we don't live in a time like that anymore. We don't live in such a passive where you like, you just take whatever they give you, you, you right. go to your job, and you're Correct. just happy that you have it. And I think that and, that's beautiful, and, and I think part of that... So why shouldn't it be beautiful in a religious okay, life also? wait, wait, so I'll tell you, know, you I think it you is beautiful. You don't just go to the school, you don't just go to the school that your parents right. told you to go to. And, and I think that, that again, I think there's something very beautiful, and especially in Eretz Israel, I think there's something very beautiful about that, because I think our Noah really is searching for spirituality and really finding it in a lot of places, and that's what makes this kind of technical halakhic stuff even harder for them. And I respect that, and I I think we, we, we need if we don't, if we ignore that and we don't capitalize and figure out how to maximize on that that real spirituality that would be unhealthy and not following I think a natural flow of where we do not Israel is going. At the same time, I would not throw out mechuyavut lahalacha. I would not. I, I'm not suggesting throwing out mechuyavut lahalacha. I'm, I'm complaining that great rabbis like Johnny Solomon aren't willing to issue the experience every single minute of your tefillah. So yes, we should make it shorter. I'm the one who I would rather get up to go to a 6.30 Ashkama Minyan because I'd rather daven for an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes. I cannot take a main Minyan. drives me out of my mind. So you know, I'm not, you know, I'm with you. Let's try to make it shorter. Let's try to make it get yield. I would. I don't think we should be having dress out and show. It's my own personal opinion because I think there are a waste of time. No, I don't want to hear somebody give me a Dvar Torah. If I want to learn Torah, I'll learn Torah in my own time. I don't, I don't have patience for this. I want to go home and go to sleep or spend time with my family. Or do all kinds of other things. So cut out the drasha, cut out the chazanos, you know, um, make it short, intense, power, as powerful as you can, pack that into a short, as short amount of, amount of time as possible. To me, that's the ideal tefillah. At the same uh, time, I, you know, yeah. part of Johnny, that is okay, so don't... Let's let Johnny give you a little bit. I want to word. interject because uh, on this, we're, we're definitely not going to see eye to eye because I'd like to ask uh, both a rhetorical question uh, and then proceed just to, with a little perspective, which is, you talked about an inspirational tefillah. I would say, uh, who says you'd even notice it if you had one? And, and I, I, I don't mean to be flippant in the slightest, but because we have had a tendency uh, in different worlds, the modern Orthodox religious Zionist world, uh, towards rationalism and dismissal of mysticism. Now, there's been some comeback. We'll know specifically in Israel that a lot more uh, religious Zionists have had a, a taking towards Hasidut, a breast of Hasidut or other Hasidut. But the norm, the non-Hasidic element of religious Zionism is still driven by a certain kind of Lithuanian approach, which is you say the words and that's it. And anybody who's read in a Shaul Leibovitz on prayer certainly knows an extreme uh, uh, description of what that looks like. Nevertheless, and I'd like to briefly mention Michael Harris's book, Faith Without Fear, which explores topics often not addressed in modern orthodoxy, and I think which apply somewhat here in terms of religious Zionism. We've of times thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, I think that we've become overly rationalistic and uh, we've ignored the numinous, the mystical elements of prayer. Prayer is by definition a mystical moment. And one could obviously unpack that. And as somebody who's Sfaradi, who I still daven in Ashkenazi Shul, I daven Nusach Edot Mizrach, and I don't claim to be, uh, you know, you know, a great model of of tefillah, but every day I'm moved, and I want to make that clear. Every day I'm moved because, at least in a few particular moments, I incorporate a Lishem Yichud, a certain meditation, a certain kavana, and these are inbuilt in Sfaradi tefillah, and they are absent almost for the entirety in uh, Ashkenazic Sidurim, specifically Sidurim like Rinat Yisrael. And when you do incorporate these focus points, which are embedded in the Sfaradi Sidur, it helps you take a second look at what you're doing. I mean, let's not forget the Gemara in Brachot, um, uh, Daf uh, Lamud Bet, tells us that Four things require Chizuk, one of them, them namely being Tefillah. 
I wouldn't blame the chazan or the synagogue. I would actually blame every prayer if they feel unmoved by prayer because they didn't get the memo. And the memo is, you need to be mechazek your own tefillah. And that requires you to take a second look at those words, which particularly for those who are already religious, um, think they already know. For me, each time, uh, every couple of years when my siddur falls apart, I buy a new siddur, often with slightly different perushim and uh, additional kavanah, and helps me take a second look at the tefillot that I already know. Um, and so I'd like to actually call this out and say, I don't buy it. Uh, yeah, of course, you can have a lousy chazan. And yes, of course, you can have a rush tefillah. And of course, each of us have days which really we're not in the right mood for tefillah. I've had those uh, actually quite recently. Nevertheless, uh, since when do we merely give up because we say tefillah is hard? You know, Shabbat is also hard, but I put in the effort. I put in the preparation. Since when do we give up because by simply saying the words, it didn't move us? But that's not what tefillah is all about. There is the, you know, if we really took Mishnah seriously, we'd meditate an hour before tefillah, an hour afterwards. Most of us don't even take a minute before tefillah. And we don't necessarily take a few moments to try and explore the meaning of uh, tefillah that we already think we know. So I, I'm actually going to well, that, say... That's because, Johnny, you think that from the minute you open your mouth to start davening until the end, it's all part of tefillah. Whereas if you said that the, the 30 minutes before you got to Amidah and then the 15 minutes after Amidah was part of it, was part of the That's pre- and post-prayer experience, then you would say, we do spend all that time. And the right. question is, is that well said? Is it well, if, is it, if, meaning, do you, do I, am I reciting, excuse me, am I reciting the words of Tehillim or am I internalizing the words of Tehillim? Or maybe because it's so much, I, I just, I, I say what I can. Meaning, look, when you study, I agree with you totally, it's very hard. When you study Ashrei, there's like beautiful pieces about the power of Ashrei and the, the importance of having kavanayin. There is no way to do that in the, in the time frame and the speed at which our davening occurs any day of the year including Yom Kippur. There's no way. Meaning, we, we mm. become... the. I, I, I agree with you, I don't buy it, because of course we have to invest more. But the framework is broken to me. It's totally broken. Was not the Hasidic movement, was it not a response to a dryness and a lack of spirituality and a lack of religious experience that some huge population was, was feeling and therefore the Rabbanim were totally against but it, but it obviously was something that 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 people responded to and, and responded to a need for. Meaning, you're not talking about people that were not religious. You're talking about people that were religious that were simply not were, were not getting what they wanted to in the regular religious environment. So that the fact that a framework exists and that we are adhering to it, I'm also not in favor of breaking molds just to break molds. And I agree that we need we need you know frameworks and it's dangerous. It really is dangerous. But if, if everyone agrees that my points are correct and everyone agrees that, it, that it's too long and everyone agrees that this doesn't make any sense, but we're just going to do it anyway because that's what we keep doing. I, I didn't we, is that really I didn't positive? Have, I didn't agree. Firstly, what, listen, you could take a, a, a particular view like Rambam says that, that one need not do uh, the repetition of Nida, at least in certain instances. I used to dub in the Spanish and Portuguese school in London where Musaf on Shabbat was Heiche Kedusha based on the Chivas Rambam uh, because he basically argues that it's best not to repeat something than has a bizbuz. 100%. So why? It's a how, great. However, I'm advocating how, that. So do another, you not however, agree? What, how do I view it? The Chidor explains that Chazar Tashat, meaning if you, if you take a second look at Chazar Tashat, there's a more mystical way of looking at it. The Chazar Tashat is part and parcel of your Amida. We often disconnect with Chazar Tashat with saying, saying, I've davened, what the heck is this for? Who is this for? Mystical teachings, at least some of them, make it very clear that Chazar Tashat is part of your tefillah itself. In fact, some even argue uh, no less important a part than your private Amidah. I don't and believe so then, so then skip my Amidah. The so wait, so skip Amidah. Why should we recite it twice? I shouldn't say the Amidah Musaf. We'll all have the Chazan say it together and I'll focus on when he's saying it. But to have everybody say the same one thing and then to have the Chazan say the exact same thing. Who's, doesn't it particularly have a very good voice? And we all have to sit... Just, it's not, I, I mean, I know I sound like... It's, it's not Ruvay Smolter. Just look around in Shul. Just look around. How many people are even listening? That's why well, the Olenei Shabbat discussion is so relevant. But They're I would ask you, how, how much have we ever invested in terms of Mechazek, Chazat I know of almost no Shul in, in all the many places I've been where deliberate endeavor has been made to say, okay, guys, this is an Avla, right? 
Let's try and do a, a greater justice to Chazarat Hashatz. Namely, it could well be following, could be saying, teaching about the value of our men, could be talking about the importance of Chazarat Hashatz, could be reducing Chazarat Hashatz. Basically, Benkach or Benkach, the sugya of Tefillah is something which we complain about, we don't necessarily educate about. And I think that's regrettable, Wait, so I, I, very regrettable. All right, so I agree with Johnny and I don't disagree, and I, and I don't agree with Johnny. I agree with Johnny that uh, there needs to be um, more education about how to daven. And I think the good news is that it, it's actually happening. Like if I think about my son's experience at yeshiva, he is learning, you know, he talks about they have, you know, the chugim um, or whatever it is, hachanalitfila. Um, he, I know that he, you know, he talks about ways in which he prepares for tefillah, and this is coming from his experience of what he's getting from his rabbeim that are teaching exactly what you're talking about. And I think that there is a phenomenon of that. If you even look at Rav Dov Zinger's book, right? I think it's called Va'anit Tefillah, Va'anit Tefillah, yeah. all about um, making tefillah into a more meditative experience. And I think that, thank God in Israel, there is this movement. I don't think it's just uh, confined to, you know, Chassidut and, and, and to Breslov. I think it's in part of the Datilumi world in a very powerful way. And I think it's very positive. And I think we need more of it. I agree with you. At the same time, I think you're setting the bar pretty high. I think to expect people to be able to stand for an hour and a half and to maintain that degree of meditative um, spirituality and elevated plugging into the experience of feeling like you're in the presence of the divine I don't know that it's possible. Now, you know, the, on the other hand, I will say, I definitely, you know, I referred earlier to the Amim Noraim, um, which in a way should prove Johnny's point because Yamim Noraim is a time where at least for me personally, um, you know, I am able to sustain it. I don't think I'm the only one. I think about Davin, I Davin in the yeshiva, but I think also in the shul here and I think also in the Hashkama Minyan here. There's, it, we are able to maintain that intensity with some dips and with some lulls, but but that's also okay because I mean, we're in because I feel so invested in the entire experience, you know. So if it's Wait, I think I think by the way, your point, Mali, you know, I mean, I you may mean, I can find something else to do that I find spiritually meaningful. I can take. Yamim Noraim, there's all these pew team that you participate in. You're standing up, you're sitting down, you're busy. There's never, I mean, yes, there's a lull, maybe for like three or four minutes at a time. But even that point, then there's chauffeur blowing, and then you're looking to the next time you're bowing down. Think about how interactive Yamim Chazal or whoever it was designed Yamim Noraim in order to keep you involved. Right. And think about what would happen is, okay, now we've got 10 minutes, sit down, and we'll talk to you in 10 minutes. Think, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, and it's not I the agree. same. It's and something that, that's that, special. That, right, so that might be part of the, the issue, and, and I think that you're right. Maybe the problem really has to do with the way Fila is structured, um, is that it's it's really not built in a way that facilitates what Johnny's talking about. Um, what are you talking uh, Guys, well, again, I... Azarat Hashas is not interesting, um, at what? least to me. And it's don't like, forget that Yabim Noraim, the Chazat, the Shatz, is the best Baal bal Tfilah in the community. Right. And also, if there would be more, again, talk even about participation on, 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 uh, on Yabim Noraim, I'm singing the entire Chazarat Hashatz. That's right. You're oh. expected to be Otherwise, participating. Otherwise, I just said Tikhan the Shabbat. I have to hear you say Tikhan the Shabbat. I've, said <laughs> I've, I've had my spiritual experience. I've, whatever it has been in those words. Why do I need to hear you say it again? I've done it. And I also think Ruby's making a very good point about, let's say, Psuki de Zimra, right? Which are there to be, I remember about this in fifth grade you know the reason that we say psuche de zimra is because we're getting we're getting near the chal of the melech and now we're going to learn you know um um kriyatshma, and you're going to feel like you're in shaman with the angels and it's all a preparation for the main event which is you know obviously you're going to say shma because that's you know the bits of saying shma and then you're going to dive in then it's going to be shma esrei but what happens when the thing that was supposed to be the the you know the, the whatever it's called when you have that the, the headliner and you have the warm-up act warm-up act you've seen the warm-up act a thousand times and it's not inspiring anymore so johnny's gonna say well it should be inspiring but what do we do when it's not for the for the many people for whom like now i'm just mumbling the first time i said it i remember when i first said tachanun for the first time i was not i went to an all-girls school we did not say tachanun somewhere in high school i learned that there was this thing called tachanun and I started saying it, and it was so moving because I had never said these words before, and they are so moving. They really are. Now, do you think I'm moved by Tachanon? You know, 35, 40 years later, well, not 40, but, you know, 
I'm not. At this point, I say Tachron because I always said Tachron, and now I can't stop. But, like, it doesn't have the same power that it had the first time I said it. And and that's the problem with rote. And, and Ravjani, if you have a, a solution that can help us make take something rote and, and, and continue to infuse it with spiritual intensity, and again, for me, singing works. You know, like, if, you, if I'm going to sing everything, that will work for me. But if you have any other suggestions, I would really be happy to hear them. And I'm not saying this facetiously or challengingly. I'm saying it really honestly. Like, I would love to... to if you can unpack the uh, secret, you know, scent, the secret spice that's going to enable those of us who find it more difficult to be inspired over the length of a, of a tefillah, certainly it's tefillah b'tzibor, I would really love to hear it. Besides, you know, making things shorter. Right, this, I mean, there, there is a book that just was recently published by Urim that I got on my list to, uh, to review, which explores uh, the visualizations appropriate for different parts of tefillah. In the some sidurim like Ishmatzliah, which again is a Sfardi sidur, those um, those are already embedded in the sidur. The point, and by the way, this is not just a Sfardi approach. Rav Dessa speaks about visualization in prayer. If prayer does not involve visualization, uh, because by the way, that's a halacha. The, the ba- forget even the additional mystical suggestion I'm talking about. The basic halacha is when you daven the amida, you should imagine you are standing. In the you know in the uh, Beta Mikdash with your eyes looking down and your heart looking up as if you're also aware of us of aware that you are standing in front of Kodesh Baruch Hu in his Kiseh Kavod, meaning Halacha requires you to visualize. If we fail to do so, to be blunt, we're failing the basic Shulchan Aruch. And I don't forget about the Shona Esrei. Forget about the Amida. I'm talking so about the all the previous, all the other things are also uh, an entrance within that journey of the Beta Mikdash, right? With each part of Tefillah representing different parts of the the holies, of course, and the and the holies of holies, with each conveying different messages. With Korbanot, obviously, being a key element in this. I, I, I genuinely, I, I don't profess to be anything other than somebody who's trying, but nonetheless. Chizuk means you need to try and you need others to mentor, coach and encourage you to do the same. I don't think we should be so quick to give up or even not give up, give up on our aspiration to take it to the next level. Uh, For those who would rather not go in this direction, you know, Heschel has a great book on Tefillah called Man's Quest for God, which some people may speak to them. No, our job is to... uh, Johnny, I would agree with you. Johnny, Johnny, I agree with with everything you're saying. But then there's the and then there's the other hour and forty minutes, meaning meaning I have to say so in in the job in which I I you know once um in the in the job in which I am I I had the I had the opportunity to give a presentation after a, a non-orthodox service and of course it wasn't for me and I didn't participate in the service I watched it from afar and and the way they related to something very simple the prayer for the sick. Like I thought to myself, they, like there was a choir there, and of course, like there was a they, they, there was a choir and an instrument, and we wouldn't do any of that. But have you ever have you ever seen the way we relate to choirs? You know, what, what would an Orthodox person say about choirs? For some reason, it's okay in the Breuer shul, but if you bring a choir into my shul, like oh my God, people like they 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 just can't wait to get out of there. Even though choir and music is supposed to be one of the ways of approaching God. Right? right, but somehow it's considered un. In the Spanish and Portuguese and then, in London, they have a choir and uh, yeah. and people cry when they sing. It and, reminds and me of the power of it. They yeah. had every single person get up and they would say, I, "I would like the congregation to pray for my friend Bessie Miller who has cancer and is in the hospital." You know what I'm saying? And what do we do? Really, what do we do? In the middle of Kriyat Torah, the Chazan gets up and says, pause as." As short as we possibly can pause for somebody, if they have a name, to mention all three names, and then bing, let's go back to what we were doing. It, it it just concretized to me how we have ritualized all meaning out of prayer. The structure is 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 anti-meaning, and that's something it seems to me is broken, and we don't have the spiritual courage to admit it. I thought Rabbi Malamed was going there. I hope that it is because he has shoulders. I don't have shoulders. I could say, Ruvay Spalter, who am I? You know, I'm not a posek, and but 
But I, I was hoping Rabbi Lamed would go there. I actually responded to his article. I sent him an email asking him my questions, which he responded nicely by saying, thank you for your email, and didn't answer any of my questions. Because this is what I feel. I feel it's broken. And I feel to say, find the meaning. I yeah, I, I, I agree with right. everything. I also think it's important to point out that different things might be meaningful for different people, right? I think we have to make room for different types of tefillah, right? Where, you know, for me, a choir does not do it. I do not feel spiritually elevated by a choir at all. It makes me feel distant. Whereas community singing actually is very meaningful for me. So I think that there's an example where, like, for one person, something might be very spiritually inspiring. For somebody else, something different might be very spiritually inspiring. And that maybe that's part of the solution. Um... And I, and I also, I wonder whether you're right, Ruby, and whether people with shoulders should be giving us permission to be, to be um, transforming. To find creative solutions within ritual. a halachic frame. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and I will always still say that I need, I need to know that the people that's coming from a place of, of real halachic commitment and authenticity because too often um, people who are willing to change things, that's the ingredient that's missing. And then I, I feel like something... Something, something does not work in that formula. But what? if you could find, you know, a, a way to do it that maintains halachic integrity and spiritual and religious commitment and seriousness, then may I, I'm, I'm open to, you know, just to, just, to, just to give I, one example, you mentioned, you mentioned the Misha Berch Lecholim. When I moved to Evan Shmuel three and a half years ago, I wrote, wrote a letter to the, uh, to the Vard saying that I felt it was too rushed, a little bit the way Rav Ruven's described. Uh, and over time, we discussed it. Uh, we've recently appointed Rav Ari Kutler as the Rav of the Minyan Ashkenaz. And he'd already not just noted my concern, but he also shared that feeling. And uh, in the past few weeks, we've sat down, we've considered how to improve it, to make it both more meaningful, more respectful, especially for when they're holding within the community, while also balancing it with the dinim of Tirchat Tzibura and exploring what that necessarily means. We were just last Shabbat, we were looking through a truva of Chaim Falaji, who speaks specifically about what Tirchat Tzibura means in terms literally of time. And we've come up with a model which I think works better. The point is, it's not the question of, is there perfection? Because you say, for what speaks for one person may not be for the other. What I do know is, the task of a Rav of a Tzibur, and only now we've got a, a Rav who can make decisions with the community and for the community, is to operate on that level. I don't think one solution by Rav Malabin may necessarily work in a different community. But surely that's the job of a Rav. That when you see something is broken, you say, Hevra, what can we do about it? Let's figure out yeah. how to balance time and need, dignity and appropriateness and do a better service and a fealty to tradition i don't want to make it sound like i don't think a fealty to tradition i, I don't want to break the yeah. i really i'm not interested in breaking everything i really i'm not i know it sounds like i no, am. i think johnny said, just said something very very wise which might actually be the beginning of a real solution which is that i think if rabbi neem would be having would be thinking from this perspective and would be having these conversations with their kihilo um and they could be building um Minyanim uh, that that would answer needs. I think that would go a long way towards solving the problems and including maybe even halachic solutions, making certain you know like as you were talking about. Um, but none, I think but by the way, this very, was very good point. Right, but this was prompted by me about by it making a, it wasn't a complaint. It was a haora. I was saying I think we can do this better. I give some Mary McComas because that's kind of what I do. Um, and I said this is I think a, a more technically correct way to do Misha Berach. And I say, like, let's see things when we can. And that's what's happened. I don't think it's fair to always say the Rabbanim have to start the conversations. I think certainly they need to be part of the solutions. Yeah, but no, but I'm saying the, the, just because that's the leadership. But I think right. that the idea is very, very correct, which is communities need to come together and talk about how to create um, tefillah experiences that are going to be meaningful. And I think adding, you know, we've kind of talked about a lot of things and there are a whole bunch of ingredients here that can be part of the solution. Maybe oh, different types of tefillah for different populations. Maybe different kinds of halachic solutions for different populations. Um, again, I think building community is part is is part of this. When you feel, um, you know, one with the people who you're who, who you're davening with. So, so I think that if those conversations are taking place from and maybe 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 some um, workshops on pre tefillah meditations or kavanot. Kavanot's a better word. Meditation sounds too flaky to people, but kavanot is a perfect word. Um, there could be a lot of ways to solve this problem if if people decided to make this a priority and to actually 
have communal conversations around solving it. I think that that's a very good point. And, and you know, unfortunately, our communities are a little bit too much in their ruts, and they don't think in this creative way. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. We're way over time. This is the conversation I actually wanted to have about tefillah. I think it's an important conversation. And if you're listening and it gets you thinking and you disagree with me, that's all fine and good. If you agree with us, that's also fine and good, as long as it spurs you to have conversations in your community as well. Uh, I think we're going to stop here. I want to thank Molly Bravsky. I want to thank Rabbi Johnny Solomon. If you like this uh, podcast, please do us a favor and share it on iTunes. If you have comments, hopefully the sound quality is better this week. We're working on it. Uh, If you have comments or questions, you can email any one of us. We're all very easy to find on the interwebs. I want to thank Patachis Volta for our intro and out music and uh, wish everyone a great week. Bye, everybody.